Greetings, future fossils. I wish I had a new and timely episode for you this week, but life has been very full and very demanding lately. So what I have for you is is one that I, much like the last one, uh, I've been sitting on for a while, and I'm actually really, really glad that I get to share this with you. It's been fermenting in the archives for a while and uh, very ripe now in the best way. This is an unusual one. This is a panel discussion that I was on at Synergy Ranch in 2016, actually the first time that I came out to visit this ranch out here in Santa Fe and uh, a really special occasion inside a Buckminster Fuller geodesic dome. Uh, The first time that I I got to visit the nearby home of my dear friend and and music producer and occasional Future Fossils guest host, Mitch Mignano, who at the time was working on the editorial staff for Synergetic Press, the uh, ecology and psychedelic publisher at Synergia. You've heard me talk about them before in episodes 93 and 94 when I interviewed biospherian Mark Nelson about his two years of enclosure inside Biosphere 2. But Synergia Ranch is a legendary and historic epicenter for a lot of really amazing projects, including the research vessel Heraclitus, which once upon a time carried Richard Evan Schultes and Timothy Leary up the Amazon for the study of the medicinal plants of the Amazonian medicine traditions. It was a great honor to participate on this panel with some real legends, uh, Dennis McKenna, who was on Future Fossils back episode 88, I believe, but also legendary psychedelics researcher Ralph Metzner, as well as uh, documentarian Gay Dillingham, whose movie Dying to Know about Tim Leary and Ram Dass is a, a truly epic piece of film. Alan Bediner, who edited the book Zigzag Zen on psychedelics and Buddhism. And strangely, Valerie Plame Wilson, a former CIA agent who was a specialist in the, the policing of nuclear arms around the world before her secret work was exposed and she was forced out of service. What this episode is not is a conversation with people of color or or black people whose voices really need to be heard right now. I have several of those interviews queued up right now in the process, waiting to happen, and I'm really looking forward to sharing those with you over the weeks and months to come. But uh, for now, I hope that you will accept this as a holdover and a consolation prize. And that if you are looking for ways to support the extremely important social justice work that is being done right now, that you'll consider making a donation, as I have, to the ACLU or to Unicorn Riot. Before we begin, I would like to give a deep and sincere thanks to all of the people who have been supporting this show on Patreon, including new Patreon supporters, 
Karen Turley, Grant Kegel, Jose Sherwood Gonzalez, Jennifer Mueller, Hillary Selden, Crystal Sowell, and Casey Climes. It is awesome to have you on deck, and I'm really looking forward to getting all of you folks into the Future Fossils Book Club for our next big discussion about Octavia Butler's extremely relevant trilogy of deeply bizarre and disturbing and brilliant works of science fiction, Lilith's Brood, coming up here in a couple weeks. If you'd like to be a part of those discussion calls, then uh, trip on over to patreon.com slash Michael Garfield, and uh, you can be a part of the book club for as little as $2 a month, as well as avail yourself to extensive archives of exclusive secret episodes and much more. And lastly, whether or not you have the means to support the show in a monetary way, I would love to have you in the Future Fossils Discord server or in the Facebook group if that's more your style, although Discord has provided us with a really wonderful and intimate place to have some great conversations lately. You can email me for an invitation at futurefossilspodcast at gmail.com or uh, drop me a note on Twitter where I'm at Michael Garfield, uh, also at Michael Garfield at Instagram, whatever's easy for you. We're pivoting here on Future Fossils into more of a bottom-up grassroots community organization, and it's been really lovely and inspiring to see so many members of the listening audience step up as active community development volunteers in this regard. There's a lot of really excellent people in this audience, and one of the main reasons I do this show is to give you all a place and an opportunity to connect with one another, and I hope that you will if you're not already doing so. So with that, I release you into a conversation with some excellent people, and uh, I hope you enjoy it, and that you'd subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts and stick around for the upcoming episodes that promise to be a little bit more focused on the deep time and big picture insights that we can harvest from current events. Thanks so much for listening, and enjoy this episode. Valerie Flame Wilson, author and uh, mythical figure, and uh, Gay Dillingham, who is uh, the director of the wonderful film Dying to Know. If you haven't seen it, you'll want to make sure and see that. And uh, I just want to take a second to, to thank uh, Ryan and the Light Lab crew for handling all the audiovisual first here tonight. And uh, remind you that we have uh, a beautiful tea service in the teepee out, uh, outside that is part of uh, their contribution to the experience this evening. 
So, um, well, I'd like to introduce Alan Bediner, who's going to moderate this panel. And uh, for those of you who may not know, uh, Zig Zag Zen uh, is uh, just an amazing book. And uh, we have it for sale over here. And uh, Alan's the author. So, uh, here we go. Earth Consciousness. Earth Consciousness. So why don't we do something that's um, familiar to all of you, I'm sure, and just take a moment in our chair to do some deep breathing. I won't waste a lot of time, just a, a tiny bit. goes a long way. Just do some deep breathing, eyes open or closed, centering, balancing, touching in on the inside, just for a minute. Thank you. So it's just amazing to be here with so many fantastic people, personal heroes of mine as well, past, present, future too. I've really been enjoying this, I think that everybody has, and uh, we're learning a lot, and we're being re-inspired, hopefully, to take action. I was very happy that my colleague Jim Gollin brought it into real terms, in terms of the places where we look to find visionary plants are under serious threat, and what we can do about it, just practical ways. So there's knowledge, and then there's action, and they don't always connect. Sometimes we know what's going on, but we, don't, uh, we haven't found a way to be employed in the effort to turn it around. So I want to be uh, a reminder of that with this opportunity. So I'm going to just take a minute and uh, say, literally, and just say a few things, and then I'm going to uh, ask a question of each of my fellow panelists, and they will take literally about a minute or two, not more than two, and uh, and then I think at that point, well, that's obviously going to be fudged, but you know, we'll, we'll start there, and, uh, and then we're going to, uh, I think that cards are going to be passed around so that we can write down a question that we would like to have answered. Leave it open if you don't care about who answers it, or you can make a, you can specify who you would like to answer it. And, uh, and then I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, that's, that's our format. So, that what's the question we're supposed to answer from you? Yeah. What's your question? I'm going to ask myself the question. So, <laughs> I'm going to, I, <laughs> Ralph, you said that questions are more important than answers, but all I have tonight is an answer. Uh, no. So, we have uh, an elephant in the room. Is that, what you, is that the right expression? I don't know. Um, it's resulting in fewer and fewer elephants. Um, anyway, we, it's not really an elephant. We know what's going on. We know that, uh, and we know that we don't know what's going on. I mean, we are in a really hard to understand, hard to predict place. I can't remember the figure, but millions of tons of cesium infected water is going into the Pacific, and it's still going in, not at the same rate that it was for almost two years, but it's still dumping into the Pacific. That's unprecedented. We don't know how that's going to affect. I, I live on the, on the West Coast, so I think about this a lot, and I watch the uh, styrofoam wash up on the beaches, and, and I'm thinking, you know, 
We really don't know what's happening to the animal life, the fish life, the, all the life that's in the oceans, of which we all depend on our own for our own lives in so many ways. And so there's, there's a lot of questions about what is really happening. But we know enough, and there's more. I mean, there's so much uh, uh, that's under threat. As Jim mentioned, the rainforest. Human behavior, which is another big one. Um, we don't know what's happening in terms of nuclear proliferation or the intention of some madman in Korea to give the orders to send a missile across the sea. So there's, we're, we're, these are perilous times. And so what I think they call for, forth from us is not only to be as aware as possible, but to actually take some action. Uh, even if it's just clicking on a website that promises to try to help, or if it's uh, you know changing from toilet paper made from from virgin forests, like I'm sad to say, I was using today here. <laughs> uh, we got to change that in procurement plans, but um, in in all the smaller ways as well, because all those smaller ways do add up and make a difference. So, and I think we'll feel less depressed, we'll feel less anxious if we know we're taking some kind of action. Uh, and I know that everybody here is, but it's important to mention it. So, um, let's um, start with um, Gay on that note, because she just traveled courageously with some amazing people to Korea, women, women to women, and uh, uh, she might have some some ideas about uh, the question of, uh, well, she might have some ideas about nuclear and Korea, et cetera. So I'm going to pass this on to you. Wide open question. <laughs> Where do you start with that one? Huh, let's see. First of all, I've tried a lot of strategies in this, trying to make a human successful story. So I've been very nonlinear. Yes, I went to North Korea. Um, I am a filmmaker, but there I was doing, um, I was the energy advisor for Richardson the first time. And uh, that was very interesting. Met with all the leadership, the vice president, down to the, mil- the head of the military, when things had really gotten very um, intractable, when the, the um, warship was sunk by the North, and 46 South, uh, Southern, South Korean soldiers died. Anyway, um, I know I don't have that much time, so I'm going to fast forward to this last trip, 15 two Nobel Peace Laureates, Gloria Steinem, some really beautiful, incredible people. Um, and we met with North Korean women and then walked across the DMZ into South Korea. Ironically, we had a thousand extra police guarding us. In which country do you think that was? South Korea. I was Alice through the looking glass the entire time on both these trips. Truly. So what do psychedelics have to do with North Korea? Everything. <laughs> um, and why was I there? Probably because I was contemplating death at a young age. My brother died when I was 17, and I needed, kind of forced, brought me to my knees, forced me to kind of wake up earlier in my life than I think I would have otherwise. And it's also when I had plant medicine that helped me heal and come back to life. So then fast forward, why in the heck am I in North Korea? Um, this film that I finished is also my contemplation and why, whether it's climate change, nuclear weapons, why can't we get it? All the information's there, and we're not doing anything about it. Then after I got fired from my public service with our new current fabulous governor, because um, I was a known environmentalist. Yeah, known. Anyway, running an environmental improvement board. Anyway, so long story short, had climate change regulations that were very, some of the most comprehensive in the, in the country, 
which was very threatening to this new administration. So when I got fired from this position, I had time to then get back to my filmmaking. And this footage with Tim Leary and Richard Alpert Ramdas just kept coming back to me. And over the years, I kept touching back to it. And I went on a long meditative kind of play, um, you know, I, I really got contemplative after this because I was frustrated with how we're going to succeed. Why, why, are, why is the information there and we're not getting it? So it brought me back to this question of death. We are a culture that is in denial. We all, we all know this um, here. Thank God I feel like I'm with my tribe. And I thank Synergia and Tango and Johnny for bringing us together. That was a little commercial break. I just love you all. <laughs> So, um, where was I? So, the, the contemplation of death is so important because if we can't put ourselves back into that cycle of life and death, which is nature, we cannot contemplate these bigger questions climate, nuclear weapons, etc. So, I chose these two characters because it's a human scale story and they happen to be, you know, the icons of a generation that helped usher in. For good and bad, and, and all the mistakes that were made, the, the, the door is now open. The, the box is now open. It's not going to go underground anymore. We are now conscious. We know there's medicine, and we're going to seek it out. And um, so, North Korea. That's actually. I'm sorry. I just can't answer it that fast. But just know that we completely don't understand what's going on over there. I mean. This is we are we are we dropped more bombs on North Korea during the Korean War than in the, the entire Asian uh, theater during World War II. That we obliterated this country. So as thirty women, and we're still asked to come back to the UN, but so it's continuing. It's called Women Cross DMZ But um, yeah, okay, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I could get carried away through the living class. Uh, North Korea. Thank you. Okay, introduce Valerie. Just tell them. Oh my God, I love this woman. She's um, she's been behind the lines, and we're really grateful to have her here in our community. Not only did she do what she did for our country, she's now stepping up in every way for our community here, and one of the brightest, most heartful women I know. Oh, thank you, Gay, <laughs> and also thank you to Tango and Johnny for having us here. Uh, this is uh, such an interesting gathering. I've had a chance to speak to quite a few of you, and I'm happy to be here. So uh, my area of expertise has nothing to do with what most people in this room have anything to do with. Um, I work for the CIA in a covert operations capacity. I tried to make sure bad guys did not get a nuclear weapon, whether that was terrorists, rogue nation states, uh, just bad actors. And I, I loved what I did. Uh, it ended uh, prematurely. Uh, and uh, we moved out here and have become, as Gay said, really uh, engaged in our community. I want to say a couple things about the conversations that have been going on yesterday and today. No matter what it is that you care about, whether it's how to get psychedelics and make sure that they're used for people that are facing terrible traumas, whether it's gun rights, whether it's women's reproductive rights, whatever it is, None of it matters, in my mind, if you don't get two existential questions right. One, the nuclear question. The second one, climate change. So I focused my expertise, as I said, nuclear things. I'm on the board of Plowshares, as well as I, I do work with Global Zero, uh, which is sort of a 
guerrilla organization that's uh, both of them are seeking to reduce and ultimately eliminate nuclear weapons. One last thing, since this, the, the title of the symposium is Earth Consciousness, so many times the conversation around nuclear weapons gets caught up in technicalities and is usually, of course, only left to a very few elite who can talk about it in negotiations. It's talking about throwaways and kilotons and, and uh, highly enriched uranium and yellow cake. Where's my husband? Um, uh, and uh, the, the fact is, you lose sight of the incredible human and environmental cost should any nuclear weapon go off anywhere. Because even if it were to happen in some place far away, you know, even with the continent of Europe or someplace else, the effects on our way of thinking and our government would be profound. So that's my link to psychedelics right there. Thank you. Uh, you, you, you were talking about the importance of questions. So my question to you is, what is the most important question right now that we should be trying to deal with? Well, I'm, I'm actually, if it's okay with you, I'm actually going to take a slightly different tack. I'm going to uh, make two statements of principles, uh, principle for action, that I think are in, indispensable. And one of them, basically, number one, is called nonviolence. And I... There's a tricky thing, you know, I studied linguistic philosophy, there's a tricky thing of making a negative your goal. So I want to expand the goal to be nonviolent conflict resolution. The whole package. Nonviolent conflict resolution. You're not going to make conflicts go away. You know, some people attack nonviolence because you just don't like conflict, blah, blah, blah. Mammy, mammy. It's not. It's active nonviolence. Like Gandhi, like Martin Luther King, like Jesus, like the Dalai Lama. Nonviolent conflict resolution, number one principle. Don't even go there. No, no talk about weapons, nothing. Doesn't eliminate conflicts, of course, conflicts arise. But it makes a commitment to nonviolent ways of resolving them. Diplomacy, good old diplomacy, what a concept. <laughs> Second principle is caring for life, all life, all life. So that we care equally, not just for the people in our family, not just for the people in our community, but for the people in China, or North Korea, or South Africa, or in the Amazon. Equally, we want them to live, and their children to thrive, and the communities to be healthy, and to have meaningful work. That's not asking a lot. It doesn't cost that much, compared to all the weapons systems. It costs nothing. We could easily afford, but Mr. Fuller used to do these calculations. We could easily afford feeding everybody on the planet 50 times over by taking all the stuff, money that's now going to weapons. So make that a commitment. So I care as much as the starving. And of course, a lot of people are going to do that. But make that a principle. Make that a practice. A practice. Practical politics principle. So. Um, this is standing because we are an Earth community. We are now bound with everybody. We can't not be. We all thrive together and we all perish together like fools. Yeah. Who said that? Somebody. Anyway. I'm glad you did. Yeah. Yes. Did you want to ask, ask me a question or should I just say what's on my mind? <laughs> Uh, say what's on your mind for two minutes. 
Excuse me, I just swallowed the wrong way. Unless you so. need a question. No, no, it's okay. I mean, I think the issues that you identified in your opening statement is actually what I'd like to address. I agree with that. I think clearly everyone in this room, we're the choir. We understand that our planet is in incredible environmental and as a result of environmental spiritual crisis. And I think that the main task in front of our species is to wake up. And that's kind of the shtick I've been pushing. And the teacher plants, indigenous people conceive these psychedelics as teacher plants. They've been teaching us ever since we've had a relationship with them. But now they're try trying to spread their message. They're getting a little desperate because when are the problematic primates going to wake up. That has to happen first before you can begin to actually do something about the crisis that we face. You have to get people to acknowledge it before you can do something. There has to be a consensus about that. And there, unfortunately, we, some of us here, most of us here, are not change makers on a, on a global scale. I mean, maybe Valerie is an exception to that. So we have to get this message out to people who can make a difference. Thought leaders in government, medicine, corporations, all of this, the toughest nuts to crack. We have to get them to come down to South America or somehow take plant medicines and hopefully learn from that and undergo a shift in consciousness because they're in a position to actually implement policy. And right now we're in a situation where you know, we seem like we're a long way away from that. I mean, they don't even acknowledge that there's a problem, you know, with climate change and all this. And not only do they not, I mean, not only do they not acknowledge it, they are, like, proud of their stupidity. You know, it's like, it's cool to be in those circles. It's cool to be a science denier. And, you know, if you're not, then you're you're hounded out of that. So there needs to be a profound waking up on a global scale, and I think that's what these plant teachers are now. They're the catalysts that can bring this about. And that has to happen first. And then once that happens, and I don't know, you know, I don't know if it's gonna happen fast enough, that's that's the problem. Then we can begin to make the changes that, that we need to make. And, uh, you know, I think one of the issues, one of the issues that we have to come to terms with is, as problematic primates, we're very, very clever, you know, but we're not wise. And so we have to bring this cleverness in sync with wisdom so that these technologies that are potentially world-destroying, like nuclear energy and genetic engineering, artificial intelligence, all of these things, these could be tremendous benefits for humanity, but also they could completely destroy us. We have to be wise about the way that we deploy these technologies or not deploy them, choose not to. We can make conscious decisions to I mean, what's driven science and innovation up to now is the idea, well, if we can do it, let's do it. We have to get clear about that. Just because we can do something doesn't mean we should. You know, just because we can 
perform the experiment, the experiment of the Large Hadron Collider that will tell us something about fundamental about the way the universe is, but there's a slightly more than zero chance that will completely destroy the space-time continuum. You know, I mean, not that I think that's a real threat, but, you know, the attitude of scientists, we are scientists, we will do it. We can't do that. We have to uh, bring with us the implications of what that means, the impact of what we do. So we humans, at this stage in evolution, we are both the most, the, the, we're simultaneously the most dangerous thing that evolution has come up with in 4.8 billion years of mucking around, and we're also the most promising development in evolution. Mm -hmm. And the jury's out. We don't know how this is going to turn out. But that's the conundrum. That's the challenge. Right. Thank you. So. Thank you. I like to play a game where I touch on every point. <laughs> So I'm glad I got to sit on this side. <laughs> We're talking about existential risk here. We're talking about the contemplation of death, both individual death and species and ecocide level death. You know, we're talking about the the need to arrive at a solution that works for the totality and the requirement in order to do that to shift to a way of thinking, or not even thinking, an identity with that totality. So there's, in a sense, you can argue, as Tony Juniper has argued, that there's an economic imperative to recognizing our boundarylessness with the rest of this world. So like, it seems that there's a beauty in, I'm sure you guys are familiar with the beautiful coincidence of the simultaneous co-discovery of LSD and the technology of the atom bomb. Okay. And so here we have, in, in, these, in these complementary interior and exterior dimensions, we have the atom bomb led to not only a uh, uh, kind of military, industrial, countercultural, cybercultural hybrid that changed the way that we think of international business and technocratic world systems management. But that was, that was because we realized that we're essentially living in this borderless space. And then on the other side of it, we have the orbital effect. You know, the Buzz Aldrin and Edgar Mitchell and these, these people who have this religious experience of going out into space, which is akin to turning our attention inward and recognizing our identity as space tourists. <laughs> so... So we have uh, you know, this fabulous book over here, The Anthropocene, by Christian Sfagro, and that book touches on all of these issues and is part of this incredible and growing literature on how we have to not only, in order to survive annihilation, we have to survive the annihilation of certain categories with which we have identified, namely that if a solution works for 100% of the world, and we only identify as self and not as that which exists prior to both self and other as concepts, then we're not going to be able to do this. We're not going to be able to come up with a solution that works for 100% of the world because we're only identifying with 50% of it. I'll leave it there for now.
So we'll have a little more discussion while you pass out cards, and then please write your questions down if you have any for the panelists. I'd like to make a, a point, maybe, that's worth making in response or bouncing off what you said. I think, I think there's a temptation to... I think it's important to recognize that technology, any technology, is not evil. It's the uses to which it's, which it's put, right? So the reason I, you made the juxtaposition of LSD and nuclear weapons, LSD is a wonderful thing if it's properly used. It can also be seriously misused for mind control and brainwashing and this sort of thing. Same technology, the moral dimension comes in terms of the use we make of it. Do we use it in a wise way? that is good. Good and bad is something that resides in human behavior. So even nuclear technology, even atomic weapons, it's hard to see how those could be good, but the evil is not inherent in those. I mean, you could use atomic bombs to power starships, for example. In my book, that would be a good thing. Any other use, it's hard to imagine how it would be a good thing. But it's important, like, especially you see this often in the drug debate. They say, oh, cocaine is so terrible, or heroin is ravaging our cities and all that. These drugs simply have. Oh. <laughs> they just have the properties they have. They're not inherently evil. They're simply a form of technology. No thing is inherently good or bad. Human behavior is where the moral dimension emerges, and I think it's important to keep that in mind. So I just want to make that point. Mm -hmm. I want to make Feel free to disagree. Now, I, I realize this is a nonviolent strategy. Nuclear weapons originally, in some ways, was meant to stop a war and to, by the power over theory, right. keep everyone else in check. So it needs to be nonviolent and think into the future, like our native peoples have been able to at least go seven generations. So it's interesting how, you know, we, we trip ourselves up over and over again without all the, the pieces. Also, there's a difference between nuclear energy and nuclear weapons. Right. Nuclear energy is not nuclear weapons necessarily. Weapons are something else completely. What are weapons good for? Killing people. Right. Right. Well, energy, the problem is we have 16 new elements on the, re on the table that we don't know what to do with. We don't know how to store them, and they're dangerous, and they're killing us. So from the very beginning, scientists that developed the nuclear weapons in this atoms for peace, they knew it was never going to be economically viable. So that was a bit of a ruse to get us to accept nuclear weapons. That's always been the history of all technology. When bronze was discovered, when iron was discovered, when bronze was discovered, when all kinds of coal, whatever. Always the weapons as well as peaceful uses. Always, simultaneously. I mean, I think it makes sense to agree that it's not the, the, the object itself that's evil, it's the intent and how it's used. Uh, on the other hand, there are some objects that can easily create evil conditions, and so we try to avoid them. Just because we can doesn't mean we have to. So, uh, and because a technology yeah, can be used doesn't mean we have to. So this is what we have to bring to the table, is clarity about how these things are used and the, the decision whether to use them. Did everybody hear that? 
Yeah. <laughs> Probably an ideal. <laughs> so I was just curious that when you mentioned uh, you were talking about bad actors, and what immediately popped into my mind was the United States. <laughs> and I'm just what, what, how you would respond to it? Yes. First of all, I think it's very appropriate to have this discussion here in New Mexico because, of course, four hours south of here was where the first atomic explosion happened in the desert, and so it has a. These questions has a, have a special resonance here. And we know, of course, that the scientists that worked on the Manhattan Project, they were so taken with, as what Oppenheimer called it, it was so sweet that they could do this, that they could actually split the atom. It went from uh, drawing on a chalkboard and the concept to really within 24 to 18 months having this incredible life-altering explosion happening. And a lot of the scientists that were involved in Manhattan Project realized almost in the moment that they saw that this had worked was what had they wrought. And there's that great newsreel of Oppenheimer quoting the Bhagavad Gavita, where you know, we have become deaf. He realized what had happened. Uh, back to the U.S., I just, we were talking about this at dinner, and I have to note it. Unfortunately, right before I came here, we were watching a, a live feed of a Trump rally, which was scary enough. But he talks, as they all do, not to bring politics into this, but talking about we need to rebuild the U.S. military, as though it's in a shambles. Just in case you didn't know, our military is equal to the 10 next countries combined. You know, it's not like we're struggling to catch up. We're be No. So th this is all a ruse. Talk about the elephant in the room. No one's called them on this. What do you mean rebuild our military? So what I do now in my work on this issue of nuclear nonproliferation, it make it very clear that we're not talking about the U.S. doing this unilaterally because that, frankly, wouldn't fly. It has to be a multilateral effort. And you may have seen a few days ago, President Obama convened the fourth nuclear security summit. Uh, over 56 world leaders came together and talked about, it was, it was a good, good first step, uh, talking about how they could begin to batten down and secure uh, highly enriched uranium and other fissile materials. Uh, unfortunately, it's mostly in the civilian sphere. They really didn't touch the military one. But um, we don't want to hear this in our discussion or our political discourse. We have been told ever since we were in kindergarten that this is an exceptional country, and we are in so many ways, but we also are exceptional, in fact, in our war-making capabilities. And uh, until we come to terms with it and recognize, particularly, again, my thing is nuclear weapons. It's, it's uh, the most powerful thing known to man, destructive-wise, anyway. Until we recognize that they no longer keep us safe and that these are weapons of the 20th century, uh, we've, I feel we've just gotten lucky. I'm always reminded by um, what um, Einstein said, you know, when he was moved by, asked by uh, Truman to uh, write the letter to support the development of atomic bomb. And he said later on, uh, after the bomb was exploded, the first bomb was exploded, he said later on, if I had known to what results my discoveries in nuclear in physics would have led, 
I would have chosen to become a plumber. <laughs> he said that. He started the nuclear non-proliferation uh, uh, right afterwards, together with the other physicists. So, Gay, when you were in Korea, did you, uh, um, how, I mean, coming back from Korea, how did you feel about, uh, I mean, people are, a lot of people are concerned about, about the possibility that we'll be, we'll have a Korean bomb in our midst. Um, how do you feel about that? Is that, is that in, has that increased your concern about that or decreased since you were there? Well, that's not what keeps me up at night, that they're sending a missile over to bomb New York City. They'd be gone in 30 minutes. What keeps me up at night, in the first meetings I was in in 2010, I heard this more than once. You all keep up the sanctions, you keep up this um, pressure as you have, and uh, we will have no choice but to sell our know-how and our materials. So it's been going on in the black market. It, you know, and that's Why is that not in our media? Um, so this going literally through the looking glass to see we have demonized each other so dramatically that we're all living in hell and we don't see really I mean this was a land-based revolution generations ago and now we're three generations later with a perverted situation and a perverted leader yes in, in Kim Jong-un but what we don't see is how we created the situation it's too easy just to say oh he's crazy he's evil you know, it is perverted now. We have isolated this country like an animal that is isolated. What happens? They get violent. A woman I was with that actually lived in North Korea was on our delegation. She told me this story, which was a fable, a Japanese fable, a thousand mirrors. And when a dog goes into the hall of a thousand mirrors, it's wagging its tail. You see a bunch of other dogs are really happy, and it's just delighted. And then it comes back, and somehow it gets scared. It starts growling at itself. And next thing you know, it's a thousand, you know, growling dogs. So we have, um, you know, we, if we can't understand why a film like The Interview doesn't help the situation. <laughs> I mean, I actually thought the response was, uh, I was relieved, let's say. So th back to this thing about, you know, it's all theater and we're buying into it. You know, what's dangerous is that this material is getting out into non with non-state actors. And that's how we're going to get it. Anyway, so I, I could say more, but I... Yeah. Dennis, do you think um, ayahuasca is going to save us? <laughs> <laughs> Marijuana is actually legal in North Korea, by the way. <laughs> no, I don't think ayahuasca is going to save us. I think we are going to save us. Maybe. Maybe. Ayahuasca is just one of the tools that we can apply to save us. But really, it is up to us. It's up to us to, again, first of all, wake up and then wise up and implement clarity of thinking and a bit of more consciousness about the future and to, you know, deploy ayahuasca wisely in a way that's healing for people and all of the psychedelics. I mean, it's not... Yeah, it's our responsibility. It's not up to ayahuasca to save us. It, the alien space brothers are not going to show up, I'm sorry, and save our butt. 
Uh, Jesus isn't going to ride in on his golden chariot and save us. You know, it's up to us. Yeah, well, oh, it's the Velociraptor. Well, whatever it is, it ain't coming. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's up to us to save ourselves, and it's up to us to foster consciousness, foster compassion for each other, use these plant medicines and psychedelic medicines as learning tools. They're powerful catalysts to help catalyze consciousness, and that's what we have to have first. So the answer is... No and yes. <laughs> yes and no. That's a good one. That's a good one. Great. Well, so we have uh, more questions here that we can contend with tonight, but uh, and they're all really good questions. One uh, on the heels of what uh, Valerie and Gay were talking about. Given your insight into the nuclear industry, how do you weigh the environmental risks and benefits of nuclear energy? And then there's another follow-up question from someone about um, Bernie Sanders, who happens to be the only presidential candidate who is talking about uh, winding down nuclear power. Little plug. You want to start? Okay. Um, with the Fukushima, that really was a dividing line because it became much more evident how close in this country and to Japan, the regulatory and the industry were. They, you know, it was just a revolving door. It's a closed loop. And that's why you get nuclear power plants, I think it's Diablo uh, in California, that's <laughs> built right on a fault line. Um, and plants that have gone way beyond their planned expiration date. And, and uh, yeah, San Onofre and so forth. Um, I don't know much, really much about nuclear energy, but I just, well, it has so much promise, living in the, the land of nothing but wind and sun, I feel that, that that hasn't been exploited to its fullest, whereas nuclear energy, we know that there is a great big downside, again, living in the land of um, the waste isolation pilot plant, which has been closed down because all these barrels of nuclear waste that they said, oh, it's fine, we'll just put it in this deep cave and it'll be, it'll be good for forever. In fact, it turned out not to be the case. Speaking of the website, I did a documentary in 1989 and, and we said that, by the way. It was going to leak because of all this stuff. Anyway, um, um, yeah, I just, where to answer this? You know, going back even further, Indigenous people from these lands, Australians that are living on uranium fields, they knew there was the power in the uranium. They would do vision questing there, but they knew not to use it. So what, why would, they were more connected somehow to not step into that problem. The other piece is that there are environmental consequences. They can't not be. I mean, if we have all these new elements on the periodic table that last for hundreds of thousands of years and we don't know what to do with them, in some ways, it's forced us into a leap of consciousness. The only way out now is through. We have got to take a leap of consciousness or we're not going to survive. So we created the very thing that's going to force our hand, force our leap. So I find that fascinating, and I wish I could remember it, but the end of the stanza, when Oppenheimer said, we have become death destroyer of worlds, the rest of the stanza is key, and I will bring it 
give back to me and I'll read it to you, but I can't remember it. But I did, I, I, I did a talk on this once because it really struck me years and years ago. Um, so nuclear energy, um, thorium, I looked at all of it, had good friends that are engineers that I trust. It's not there. I know Bill Gates, a lot of people are investing in this. So far, nothing is out there that um, is viable. So it's, yeah, Mike. Yeah. If we're going to take this super organismal, holistic approach to things, you know, if we're looking for a, a mutation of consciousness that allows us to see the whole as a whole on, as a single individual, then there's an interesting parallel between nuclear energy and nuclear warfare, and also the uh, radiation treatment for cancer. And the way that we react to this disease, which is essentially, in some respects, a, a consequence of chronic inflammation, and therefore, you know, a, a perfect example of the kind of thing that cell biologist Lewis Thomas at the Lindisfarne Association in 1972 compared to the military-industrial complex as an autoimmune disorder. So, like, moving from that, this solution of the whole thing is not, you know, it's, it's the animal intelligence, it's the mineral intelligence as well as the vegetable intelligence. And so, you know, we reach out into not only recognizing vegetable, I know we, we group mushrooms into this, but it would be a crime not to mention Paul Stamets in the work that he's done on radiation treatment with mushrooms in this conversation, and make the point that he's also developed mushroom treatments for cancer, and that, that these, these treatments that do not simply attempt to isolate other and bombard some part of our own body, whether that's in the, you know, within the envelope of skin or the larger body, that these parallel the kind of movement that we need to make in society with psychedelics. And that it's you know, this, this movement to seeing it, that we can rehabilitate these cells. We don't have to destroy them because the whole thing has to live or what's left. Right, I think, I think that's a very astute observation, and as a culture, we're very much preoccupied with the, the war model, yeah. right? We've got the war on cancer, we've got the war on drugs, we've got the, the war on consciousness. The war on war. The war, well, that's what we need, is a war on war. But, you know, why can't we step out of that? I mean, I think you're absolutely right. You know, and now in cancer therapy, they're realizing that this is not how you approach it. This is not how you do it. Oh, the war on terrorism. It's war on ideas. It's interesting that, Michael, that was a good point, and it's interesting now that we're very excited about new medical technologies that come from where? From plants in the ground. CBD, mushrooms. I mean, this, this is the real edge of healing. Mm -hmm. On that note, someone asked, how can psychedelics be used in dying? Something we'll all go through. Do you want to take that on? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, I think that's, that's, that's one of the key, that's the key application. The, yeah. the major significant applications are MDMA in the treatment of uh, family relations and trauma, uh, improving family because it has an amazing quality of producing empathy naturally, just like easily, without struggle. And um, 
and then yeah, and then um, I think psilocybin and LSD, not so much MDMA. Because MDMA is very life affirming. It has amphetamines in it. MDMA is amphetamine, but it's life affirming. So I think that at the end of life, and uh, the significant point here is that uh, dying is not a medical condition. It doesn't uh, need to be treated. Now, you may die from a medical condition, but we all know we're all going to die. It's a basic fact of life. Everything that's born is going to die. So, in the most ancient times, these uh, spiritual technologies, spiritual methods, meditating, spiritual methods, expansion of consciousness, have been used to help prepare people for dying. And Aldous Huxley wrote it in a vision of a community island where this was actively practiced, and he practiced it in his own life. And I envision, as other people have too, centers for, to facilitate the end of life. Not to treat any disease, treat whatever diseases exist, or not. Some people die without a disease, and uh, you can plan to do it that way. They do, actually, they die in bed, peacefully. Peacefully dying in bed. What? What? Will you? Your own death. She's asking, will you? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. That's a long time from now. No, no, but I can put an attention on the manner of my dying, or I would hope to, and prepare myself. That's the point. The, the, uh, the psychedelic experiences can give you a little foretaste of what it's like to disidentify with the body. That's the key thing. You want to be able to disidentify with the body so you realize you're not your body. It's just your body that's dying. And that is connected. That involves a whole change of your worldview. Because we don't, as a worldview, we don't understand what dying is. We don't have a clue. If we're, if we're living in a, in a materialistic worldview which took over from a worldview that denied any of the afterlife. And that goes back to the 5th century, when Christianity came in at the Council of Nicaea and said, well, there is no afterlife. There's only heaven, hell, and purgatory. Those are the three options. That's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous, absurd, and it's not true. It's not true. It never has been true. So the afterlife is at least as variable. Actually, all the evidence suggests from people who have died and come back, which is quite a large number of people who have died and come back and written books about what they said, the afterlife is at least as varied, actually more varied than the current life, the present life. It's multidimensional. So preparing ourselves for it is a fantastic adventure. For ourselves, for our families, for those we love, our loved ones, and uh, it's a challenge for us, and it's a fantastic opportunity. What that would do for people, for, for our consciousness, you, you don't let yourself get away with shit. <laughs> like people commit crimes, what the fuck, you know, who cares? Kill this person, kill that person, steal this money. If you have a belief it's all over, and that all over, I'm going to go, you know, nothing, nothing. The materialists, the scientific materialists, they think, well, it's all going to be nothing. They're in for a big surprise. <laughs> but then, that's okay. It'll be an awakening. It'll be an release. It'll be an expansion of consciousness. Say the afterlife. I struggle with that, and so I like hereafter, which is in the be here now place. 
So. Thank you. I like it. Well, I think that's probably a good place to close. Oh, please. This is a story. You'll love this. I was on. I had a meeting with Ramdas, so it was kind of a little discussion. And I was thinking about, uh, I, I was thinking in my work on Zoyedi about different phrases for the after, what, the life, existence after, after death, you know, like um, um, heaven, hell, and so forth, and this thing. And um, one of the phrases that people, that I really like is the hereafter. It's sort of an old-fashioned phrase, people used to, the, the hereafter. So it occurred to me, and I said to Ramdas, well, um, um, maybe, um, you know, your phrase, be here now, that seems like really profound and true and valid and so on. Maybe uh, it should be expanded or could be expanded and say, be here now and hereafter. <laughs> because you want to be, you know, be conscious of the hereafter. So then he said, he said, uh, he laughed and thought, yeah, that's cool, chuckled, and then he said, well, actually, you know, be here now covers it. Yes. <laughs> Thank you all very much. That was just awesome. Thanks again for listening. Future Fossils is an independent, ad-free, entirely listener-supported program. If you believe in the work that I'm doing and you want to help see it thrive into the unimaginable future, then you can avail yourself of all of the backstage goodies at patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. Or you can just leave a review at Apple Podcasts. That's more helpful than you know. Reach out to me personally at Michael Garfield on Twitter or Instagram and have a wonderful eon.